0: Thank you, Jesus, for being here. For being sufficient for all of us. And being for all powerful. Lord, when we feel out of control, you've got it. Help us to remember that when we're in the storms of life. Lord, I do lift up today and ask that your spirit would be moving in your children. And that it's not, that they would not hear me, but they, that your Holy Spirit would work through me and speak to the hearts of your people to your church, Lord. So we just lift up this message, Lord, and we thank you that you love us so much that words don't even suffice. In Jesus' name, Amen. A Christian pris- prisoner in Cuba was asked to sign a statement containing charges against fellow Christians that would get that would lead to their arrest. And he said, the chains keep me from signing this. The communist officer protested, but you're not in chains. I am, said the Christian. I am bound by the chains of witnesses who throughout the centuries gave their lives for Jesus Christ. I am a link in this chain. I will not break it. His commitment was seen in that moment. We receive what is freely given to walk a life Jesus Christ has called us to. But are we all in? Have you and I stayed the storms of life with Christ, or are we making our own paths because we believe we know what is best? Or do we try to live in two worlds, one in which God is calling you to, and the other when it gets a little bit too too sweaty and difficult and try to stay in both? Or maybe his path is just a little bit too uncomfortable for you, so we attempt to modify and really compromise our lives and actions to follow Him in a more comfortable way. Today, we're going to be jumping into the Old Testament, not just in the the life of Elisha, but the world around him, to see the similarities between him and the calling he received in that time, and see how that can impact and teach us. You know, the Old Testament can be complicated, tangled, and wade through. And while the Internet can be of great help, it can do a lot of harm in our understanding and it can also intimidate and confuse our worlds to no end. Not only can it confuse, but it can outright teach lies and wrong teachings in theology. And nobody is immune to it, myself included. And that's why part of our calling as the body is, is to not come up with these ideas all on our own. our theologies all in isolation, but to journey together. And as I say together, because just as Elisha received the call, God's call is rarely an isolated event from those around us. And you know, we we always encourage and give thanks to all of you who who study the Word daily or spend your week at different times doing devotions, getting into the Word, and that is so important. And the more of us that are doing that, I believe, would, would just do away with a lot of the difficulties and strife and harm to one another. Would just fall away as we learn his word. But that's not all of it. And your study is important, don't hear me wrong. But this is just a part of how God has been calling his body. We need to learn alone, but we also need to learn to learn together, so to speak. Solid and sound theologies or ideologies are not born in isolation. This is where the Holy Spirit that lives in each of you with the Word of God, which each of you have. If you don't, come to me and I'll get you one. And the community of God around us should be able to come together to form our theologies and help us discern our call in life. And if you're attempting this life, missing any one of those three, we run the danger of becoming polarized in a world that's giving us a perfect example of what polarization looks like. Or we create cults. Groups of people and ideas that believe they are immune to error. And finally, we become self-centered, focused on our own control of situations, instead of surrendering to a God who ultimately has true control. So as we approach Elisha, I want to give you a bit of a high-flying view of the Bible. Sometimes it can help, especially if you're not really familiar with the Old Testament, to help place characters in the bigger timeline of the biblical history. So I just have this really broad outline up there, and we'll, I'll go through this really briefly. I just wrote a, a brief poem that summarizes and moves through each of these characters, and then we'll zoom in a little bit more. So the world begins with God's creation of all things included the land, but Adam and Eve quickly blunder into a sin with a misplaced hand. It didn't take long for God to mourn his own creation and wipe us away. With one giant flood, only the family of Noah was saved that day. God chose a people and their leader Abraham to play a special role, to be God's chosen people who would become a lamp pole. David, the unlikely shepherd, is chosen to be king, a man after God's own heart of which all after would be compared to. Until the miracle birth of Jesus' own son, the eternal king of God's own son, Jesus. The eternal king who would finally undo the hold of Satan on this world and freely offer to make each of us anew. Now we arrive at the present age where God is calling you and I to walk the path he has laid to witness to the world his hope and light, not merely in our talk, and even when we're mocked. Because one day the end will come, and all will be made right. Every single tear will melt away, and finally the end to our fight. I want to set the stage a little bit more, just so that we grasp some of the journey leading up to Elisha's time. So this is a little bit after Abraham, before David. You know, Abraham's called out by God to go to a land that he would give to the people of Israel. And Joshua follows after him later down the line, and Joshua starts fulfilling that. He enters the land with the people of Israel, and we start to see the fulfillment of what God was calling so long ago in the life of Abraham. But Joshua doesn't do all that God calls him to, and the people of Israel don't either. And so God has to raise judges. And these people are almost as saviors. They have to keep rescuing the people of Israel from all the nations around them and keep calling them back to God. And the book of Judges ends, in a way, saying, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And Isn't that similar to our own time? And so then it moves on to the time of kings, just before King David here on on this timeline. And... And the people come to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, and they literally say to him, we don't want this, just us and God, with him directing. We are looking at the nations around us. We want to be like them. So give us a king, because that's what they got. And we want to look like, we want to be like the nations. They literally say, we want to be like those around us. And they call for a king to lead them. And God warns them. He he does what they ask, what they cry out for, but he warns them of what a human king is going to be like, how he's going to send the young men to war, he's going to tax them for their goods, he's going to bring so much different complications to their lives, but they demand it, and so they get it. So the time of kings keeps going and failing, and so prophets come onto the scene, and prophets are the voice of God coming to the people, calling them to repent and to turn back to God before even worse consequences come their way. But they don't listen. And this is the time that Elisha is part of. So I'm going to zoom in between that time of David and Jesus a little bit. The time I call the the time of kings and prophets. And it's setting the stage for the time and place Elisha is born into. The call that he received directly relates to the events that have gone on before him. And you are called as well. And not to just some arbitrary time and space. The events before have led you to this time now. For you to be here is no mistake. It is ordained by God himself and you are in this moment and space for a reason. But are we humble enough to hear him and surrendered enough to embrace his words to us and have the courage to walk where and how he directs us? So, zoomed in a little bit farther, we see that King Solomon marked the end of a united kingdom. And Israel gets broken into two two parts Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And the story of the split kingdom is actually just quite bleak as well. The southern kingdom had about 20 kings. I didn't mark them all in there, I just colored from green to red because eight of those kings were described as good kings and 12 were described as evil. And you know, the southern kingdom does last longer, you can see that, than the the north kingdom. And it reveals that importance of who we're following and who is leading. Our leaders should be pointing us to God, and when they're not, there's consequences. And then there's that northern kingdom, the shorter timeline where Elisha gets called in. They had 19 kings, almost the same amount of kings as Judah, but with 136 years shorter lifespan as a nation before they're exiled. They both get there, but look how much quicker they get there. And they had almost the same amount of kings, so a lot of turnover. And there's no green in that timeline because there's no good king. It gives us a bit of a picture of the condition of Israel. And it was a dark era, and Israel was quickly heading to exile. But how do you respond when you're called in such a time as that? Are we not in our own era of darkness? To steal a quote, we live in a time history is being rewritten, biology is being redefined, and right and wrong is being erased. As Elisha, we're in a dark time and many before us are called in those troubled times, so don't let the times discourage you from the work set before us. So as we approach the time of Elisha, a man who followed in the footsteps of the great prophet Elijah. I apologize, Elisha and Elijah kind of sound exactly the same. I'll try to overpronounce both of their names so you know who I'm talking about. But we're going to be in 1 Kings 19 from here on. If you want to open your Bibles, you can. I have most of the scripture up here, but just so you know where I'm going. Elijah, who came before Elisha, you may recognize a little bit easier because he appeared with Moses to Jesus on the mountain in the New Testament. And he's mentioned just a whole lot more in scripture. Yet Elisha, who follows him, performed more miracles than than anybody else in the Bible, except Jesus himself. And he actually performed double the amount of his predecessor, Elijah. And it reinforces that truth that while we're called to good works, we are not judged by or valued by the quantity or grandness of them. We are merely called to serve him. And so I challenge you as you go about each of your daily duties that God loves you where where you're at no matter what. And while he's calling you and prompting you, and I believe that of each of you, that the works that you do or do not do don't define his love for you. Elisha comes comes onto the scene at an interesting point in his predecessor's life, Elijah. At the beginning of 1 Kings 19, Elijah, who came before, had been in in a sense the pinnacle of his career as far as prophets are concerned. Their lives are not easy. But it it quickly takes a turn as Queen Jezebel hears about what Elijah is preaching and telling the people and what he's doing. He had just... Perform some miraculous things. And then this human king queen comes along and threatens him. And what does he do? He runs. He runs away. He runs to the same mountain, Mount Horeb, where Moses had received the Ten Commandments. And he then hear, hears God assign him, give him some works to do, to anoint two future kings, one of Syria, a king of Israel and the prophet who would take his place, who would be Elisha. From his current view, from Elijah's current view, things are really bad, and his cry on that mountain, as I call it, reminds us that while we see in part, we never see in whole. Remember that we are all called, but we're never the one and only, or the, yeah, the one and only way God will work in the world. You know, I see people as they face storms, as they sit down and talk, as Elijah did with his own storm, as that storm intensifies in somebody's life, it's like our vision begins to narrow. And we put up these blinders to the truth and forget how big God is, especially in those hard times. Instead, of being, we, instead we begin to feel that we know what's right, what needs to happen, and that I'm the only one to make it happen, especially in the hard times. And God continually reveals that human nature within us that really, in the end, we make it all about ourselves. That it revolves around us, and we need His Holy Spirit, His Word, and His people to remind us and bring us back to stay in that truth of who's in control. We, like Elijah, need to remember to be content with being part of the plan and not the plan itself. God doesn't need any of us, but He delights in using His children. And for some great mystery, he's calling each and every one of you to be a part of this plan. Doesn't even make any human sense. He delights in using us. As God told Elijah, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God did not slam Elijah's complaint he addresses, he speaks, he meets with them on the mountain, and he tasks them with some work. And then at the end, he, this is like an encouragement and a reassurance and comforting word to, to Elijah. He's saying, I have saved others. It's not all on you. God, that burden, oh, get that burden off your back as it's not yours to bear. Elijah then goes on and actually doesn't even complete the three things that he's called to do. Those two kings, he he never anoints them. It's what Elisha goes and does afterwards. The only thing he does, complete of the three, is anointing Elisha to take over his work as a prophet. So I'm just going to read now Elisha's call, the final verses in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took... The yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him." You know, little is known about Elisha's dad, Shaphat. We know that they had a prosperous farm. He had no fewer than 12 oxen below Elisha, 12 yoke of oxen, which is 24 oxen and not a small operation at the time. And just as we heard in worship talking about Jireh and the meaning of Jireh, the Hebrews and names is very important in their culture. Not so much today, but very much so in that time. And what does Shaphat name his son Elisha, which means my God is my salvation. And with Elisha's response to Elijah's call, I wonder if this family is part of that 7,000 that God had said to the prophet Elijah before on that mountain saying this is one of those families that has not bowed down to the idols. And it's interesting to note where Elijah finds Elisha. He was not in the schools of the prophets that did exist in those times. He wasn't reading, studying the word, or praying, or even offering sacrifices at the temple. He was in the field plowing, doing his work. He was hard at work in the field being faithful in that which is the least. Reading from Luke sixteen, ten to 13. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Elisha's story helps color the teachings from Jesus and Luke. Elisha was being faithful with the little that he had. And the arrival of Elijah marks the moment where God was about to entrust much to him and commit to his trust the true riches. So don't discount the small things, the work and the duties in your life. Because what you do now matters for what you're going to be called to tomorrow. The tasks as believers are given are in proportion to our faithfulness in carrying out the smaller and menial. And yet there's this growing attitude and entanglement of entitlement and laziness in our culture, where we tend to believe that we deserve the wealth, the comfort, and the handouts. And unfortunately, our culture keeps feeding us these lies. But we're not to live as the world, but for the God who made it. So then Elijah puts his cloak upon Elisha, calling and anointing him at the same time, and Elisha's response is to run after Elijah. And I know that we need discernment in our lives when God is calling us to move. And you could argue that Elisha had it easier. He had this prophet of the living God, one of the few that was faithful in the land, come and put his cloak. This is a pretty obvious call. And you could say, well, we don't get calls like that. It's not so obvious when God's prompting me to move. But isn't he? What's in his word? What does he call us to do? To love one another? To love God and love our neighbor? To take care of the less fortunate, the widows, the orphans? To make disciples of all nations? He's given us his word, which is a detailed map to what is important and what we should be focused on and what we shouldn't be focused on. And then we have his Holy Spirit. And if we're listening... It'll align with his word. And then there's the community of people around you who can help to encourage and discern. And when I say community, I don't just mean a few people that look and sound just like you. I believe if we're going to have this work well, it needs to be a, a, a community of diversity in both age, perspective, thought, and background to do this healthily. You know, the world is teaching conformity and tolerance. And it's making people believe that if we have differences of opinion or thought on any topic, we now become intolerable, unable to fit with the workings of society. And that's a lie. Healthy society and likewise healthy friendships and community require people who are different, who can work and love together with our differences in hand. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27:17. Abrasion and friction, which is required in sharpening a blade, is also required in us, and are the forces that will move us and change us for the better. So don't pull away when you encounter those differences with others. Lean in and grow and lean and learn from one another. How to live in unity with others of different opinion, and this in itself will testify to the world Christ's love, thus, in part, fulfilling what we're all called to do. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. They do not recognize us because we fight and argue and hurt one another like animals. Or, and maybe worse, we just isolate ourselves because, quite frankly, seems a lot easier. We have a clear call, and maybe we need to come closer alongside brothers and sisters to begin working that call out as Elisha did with Elijah. Moving on, we see Elisha run up and ask Elijah, let me kiss my mother and father, and then I will follow, to which Elijah responds, go back again, for what have I done to you? I believe in part that Elijah was lamenting the prophet's mantle that he had bestowed on Elisha. He feared for him, knowing what was to come. It's as if he was saying, what have I done to you, given what I know will happen to you? There is no comfort. This is not a comfortable calling. He's aiming at Elisha. But it was not Elijah's job to force Elisha to follow him at once. No, Elisha's desire was to follow Elijah would have to come from both Elisha himself and the Lord. In modern language, it's put this way. Hey, dude, right now I'm not the boss of you. If out of respect for your parents, you want to say goodbye to them and to your peeps first, go ahead. I've done, I've done my job as the Lord commanded me. The rest is a matter between you and the Lord. Elisha's work was now finished and he was leaving it up to Elisha and God. And that passage recalls the words of, of Jesus in Luke 9, 61, 62. Yet another said, and this is talking about the cost of following Jesus. I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those, who, to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. But Jesus' words here, calling us and calling the disciples, and Elijah's words to Elisha, are giving us the same warning. And one says it this way, we have the stern but necessary rejection of half-hearted service, even if the heart be distracted by the most natural and sacred love. God is calling you to be all in. Halfway commitments turned into lukewarm, lukewarm walks of faith. And if you want to know what God thinks about being lukewarm, Read Revelation and the story of the church of Laodicea. It's not a good place. Elisha's willing example is inspiring. He has a family, a respectable job, and comfort, and even wealth. But he does not let any of that hold him back from what God had. And I think that's the challenge to all of us who are being told by the world to put you first, to make comfort and wealth your goals. And like it or not, that preaching from the world catches our ears, even as we try to, try to stay focused. And we need to stay in Jesus and his spirit to stay away from it. Another commentator puts Elisha's call this way. An honest calling in the world does not put us out of, way, out of the way of the heavenly calling any more than it did Elisha. His heart was touched by the Holy Spirit, and he was ready to leave all to attend Elijah. It is in a day of power that Christ's subjects are made willing, nor would any come to Christ unless they were thus drawn. It was a discouraging time for prophets to set out in. His desire to bid farewell to his mother and father was not a veiled excuse for the rigors of true service, but a genuine love for parents whom he'd served faithfully in his youth. And Elisha fulfills that other part of Luke that I already mentioned, about not just being faithful in the little that he'd been handed, but by showing that he would not serve two masters. He destroyed his work equipment, literally cooked the oxen over it, and fed it to his family and friends. I don't know if he can show more commitment to being a farmer and changing from that to what God was calling So while honoring his family, he also shows his commitment to the call. I wonder if we all have the, the commitment to the call that Elisha demonstrates here. How many times have you been prompted to do something by God but keep one hand at the wheel of whatever your own plans are and what you're up to and then also try to step the other foot in what he's calling you to do. So you kind of keep all your positions open. You know, I can't say that I always respond like Elisha. But there have been moments that I have. I thank Jesus that I've had that strength. When we were called to the mission field to go to Spain as long-term missionaries, in a sense, it was easy to start down that path. Because I kept on working. I I was raising support on top of it, and I was getting training to move overseas, but the commitment level was quite low at that time. And the temptation to keep a hand here on this side of the ocean began to grow. And the crazy thing is, is that I had a friend that warned me what would happen. He was a good friend and missionary in Turkey. And he poured into me and my wife. And he said, when embracing a call, especially a big call like this, to go overseas, if if this is from God, you will... It's not a matter of if, it's when, that you're going to find resistance and temptation, and attack from the devil. And the problem is, it's going to look really good. It's not going to be a blinking light in your life. Devil attacking, go the other way. It didn't look like that. And yet I forgot his words until closer to the departure. So we were living in Regina, Saskatchewan at the time, and I was working two jobs, one in the summer doing carpentry, no, doing landscape construction in the summer, and in the winters, I did finished carpentry and cabinet installation, and I loved my jobs. And so it came to my final summer and working with my boss, doing the construction work outside, and he was an ex-pastor, so he understood what I was doing, and he was totally supporting the call to move overseas. And so he sits me down one day, and he's like, Adam, I really appreciate your work, and actually I really don't want you to go, so I've got, I've got something to offer you. Maybe you should just work with me half, half the year, stay here in the summer, and then just go for six months and just rotate. He's like, then you wouldn't have to raise support, which any of you that have raised support and know how difficult it is to rely on other people's gifts to you to sustain your family, that was tempting. It didn't make sense to me because I wanted to go and share Jesus with people and build relationships. And if you bail every six months, I don't know any of you that has successfully Started and kept friendships and then left six months and came back. Or planted churches that way. I'll pour into the church and it says, see you guys, I'm off for six months, survive, and I'll come back and see how you're doing. So, logically, that was helpful to, to push away some of that temptation. But then came my final winter, and I was working with my boss doing carpentry indoors. And I really got along with him, and he wasn't a believer, and we had lots of good chats. And so, he sits me down one day. He says, Adam, I, I really appreciate your work, and, and this has been really good working with you. And he's like, so let me get this straight. So you're moving overseas to share Jesus with people because you, you believe everybody needs to hear the word and love of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that's basically what I'm coming to do or going to do. And he, he responds, okay, yeah, that, I get that, even though he doesn't believe. He's like, so, but, but don't people need Jesus and Regina? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're right. People do need Jesus and Regina, too. And he's like, okay, so, so why don't you just stay here? And you know what? To sweeten the... I, I actually appreciate working with you so much that I just want to give you half the business. I want to go into business with you, and we'll be equal partners. And I'll throw in a truck as a signing bonus. <laughs> like, I was fresh out of college, guys. Like, this is a great opportunity. I had skills... He was putting them to work. I really appreciated it. I felt valued by the world, by my boss. To be given this handout, this is a very comfortable path and position for me. And it was tempting, but in that moment, I said yes to what God was calling me to. And that doesn't mean that I always say yes to what he's calling me to. Temptations didn't stop there. And I'm challenged to walk what he's called me to do, whether it's a big more big drastic change like that, or even in the small things in the day-to-day when I need to stop in my crazy schedule to just love on somebody and just throw away my own plans for that day. That's still a response that I'm not always good at saying yes to. So we all want to walk the path he has for us. At least I feel like parts of your hearts do, and part of my heart. I think our hearts are actually more deceiving than we even know. And part of them is pretty terrified. But part of us do want to walk what he has for us. And while the flesh is weak, we have a world that is constantly pushing against us, feeding us lies about what we should pursue, what we should value, and what is success. But I'm praying that we can be a little bit more like Elisha, And that each day we would be hard at work at what we believe God has called us to, no matter what the size, the grandness, or the rush that we get from that work. Do all things for the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. And while we do it, we are always ready to run to God when he calls us to move. I pray that God's word would be consumed at such a high volume here, that the instructions for life would be embedded in your guys' bones so that when the Holy Spirit speaks to you and me, that we're listening and we truly know when he's calling. And that brothers and sisters around us would challenge us to speak in our lives and to push us when we're uncomfortable, when those uncomfortable moments happen. Because they will happen if you're living a life submitted to God. His ways are not our ways, but they're good ways. And they will bring both him and our soul's delight, whether it's in this life or in the next. Let me pray. Father, you are speaking to each of us. Lord, we thank you that you are God who has chosen to use each of your children here in that great, grand tapestry that you're weaving. And, for, and you've chosen to use broken people people that come with baggage, that come with past, that come with history, and yet because of your son's blood, they can meet with you now and you can speak into their hearts how you feel about them, what you want to do in them. Father, you are working in your children, and I ask, Lord, help our hearts to be soft and to respond to the promptings of your Holy Spirit, to your scriptures, into your body of faith around us, Lord. Thank you for giving us these tools, giving us your presence. Jesus, give us the courage to walk the untrodden path and be willing to get uncomfortable, Lord. I just commit each life to you, Lord, and give you thanks for each and everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone.